This is Hotshot Archery's Outdoor Podcast. The show starts in three, two, one, go. What's up, everybody? This is the Hotshot Archery Outdoor Podcast. My name is Robin Parks. Thanks for listening. This time, we have a longtime pro staffer with Hotshot Archery, and his name is Brad Bentley. Brad, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing all right. How are you, sir? I am doing really good. The weather has broke here. It's starting to feel like turkey season. I'm really starting to think about turkey season. And uh, as you know, I want to let the listeners know that's why I'm having you on. We're going to take some time and talk about your very first turkey, which you shot last spring. Um, But before we get into that, um, I did mention already you're a longtime staffer. Why don't you... Um, I know your story, but why don't you tell the listeners a little bit of your background and how you've come to be um, involved with Hotshot Archery. Absolutely. So basically my association with Hotshot started in 2002-2003 when uh, at the time the company was owned by a very close friend of mine who also happened to own the largest pro shop in the state of Utah. And he was also one of the largest distributors worldwide um, for archery equipment. Um, You know, he was one of the, that, that shop, you know, was an enormous distributor for Europe, for Asia, for everywhere. And at that time, he was the owner of the hot shop brand. And uh, I, you know, just from my relationship through him, through being a, a customer of his, buying bows and everything else from him for years, um, you know, my relationship with Hotshot was was, was purely it, it was almost by default. Um, along with the guy who owned the company, um, I had a really close friend that I grew up with. Um, you know, we we went to junior high and high school together, and he moved up to. Uh, pr- Provo, Orem area here in Utah, which is where the shop was located. And he was actually working at this uh, pro shop. And, you know, aside from working for the pro shop where Hotshot was associated with the company, he was also a direct employee for Hotshot at the time. And so in the back of the warehouse of this building, you know, Hotshot had their own space where releases were, you know, designed and I can't remember if they had their own anodizing station and CNC machines or not, but so my buddy was working for Hotshot at the time, building new releases. And I want to say like it was around 2002, 2003. And uh, he had suggested, he was like, why don't you try, why don't you try one of these releases? And at that time I was still um, a wrist rocket guy. I had never, I had never shot any type of handheld release. And uh, he said, you know, why don't you give this a try? I think it's, I think it's going to be better for you, for your style. And so I bought my first hotshot release in 2003. It was a model, um, ironically enough, called the X-Spot, which, you know, we have resurrected as in recent years, but the shape of the handle and, and everything was a little bit different. Um, but I bought one of those and I... I've never looked back since. So since 2003, um, I can't begin to count how many hotshot releases I've owned and that have passed through my hand since then. 
I actually still have that original release that I bought in 2003 um, with the old Hotshot logo on it. And uh, I mean, it still works. I keep it. I keep it as a backup in my in my quiver and in my pack when I'm on the mountain. So um, I have been affiliated with Hotshot for a long time. I guess on the pro staff end of it, I have only been a member of the pro staff since it was either 2013 or 2014 is when I was brought on board as an, uh, an official pro staff member. But I have been, I've been shooting hotshot releases exclusively since 2003. So that's, uh, that's kind of my introduction to the company and, 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 and how I became involved and associated. Yeah. And we've talked um, in past episodes on this podcast about, you know, how it came to be that the new owner, he's not really a new owner anymore, but how Dave White became the owner and, you know, basically resurrected the hotshot name. And so, I mean, really what, what you've just described is you've been a hotshot release user and customer going all the way back, predating myself and predating the, the current owner, Dave White. And, um, you know, I could still remember getting your your application the first application you sent in for the staff and it was you know shortly after we really were trying to um up the pro staff uh, program with hotshot and um if i remember right you you came across dave the owner at the vegas shoot that year right yeah it was uh you know i had walked up to the counter or not the counter, but the booth at the Vegas, you know, if for those who have never been to Vegas um, above the the main arena floor, there is a miniature trade show. It's basically like a mini ATA show. And, you know, most of the major players in the industry have, have booths set up at this event and, you know, are taking orders, selling product. And uh, I remember walking up to that booth and, introducing myself to Dave and saying, you know, Hey, I've been, I've been shooting this release for this brand of release for X amount of years. And, you know, I'm, I've always, I've never had any reason to, to complain or, or, or look for a, look for a way out to switch to a different release. And, you know, I, I think I made the pitch to him that, you know, I was legitimately interested in, in, being associated and involved with the company in whatever capacity that was, if it was, you know, as an employee of the company or a, you know, just a, an, a, an ambassador, a representative, a pro staff member, whatever it may be. And uh, from that point on, um, you know, I'm usually working right alongside with Dave in the hotshot booth at Vegas. So for those of you that have visited the hotshot booth, um, in, in recent years while in Vegas, um, you know, we've probably crossed paths and, or crossed paths and, and met, um, you just probably didn't realize it was me. So, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of love and respect for Dave White. Um, he's a really good dude. He's, he's got such a solid head on his shoulders. He's, he's brilliant. He's, he's really good with business and, uh, you know, he's a, I think he's a, good fit for for this company i'm gonna have to make sure that he doesn't listen to this i think you're gonna make his headaches explode listen uh, listen all those qualities but you've actually i mean you've nailed him down really uh 
he is such a good guy and um you know a, a lot of it seems to be that's the case with a lot of companies in the outdoor industry that somewhere up at the top of them if they haven't been bought by a big conglomerate you know corporation yet there, there always seems to be that good guy or gal at the top that is brilliant but down to earth and a great person and involved in the outdoors and and that is dave white and yeah you're uh it's almost like you've taken my place there at the vegas shoot because uh, a lot of people may not realize but hotshot is located in utah yet i live in missouri so even though i'm a hotshot employee um you know the vegas shoot is not very feasible for me you know why spend the money to fly me out there and be in the booth when we have, you know, great staff members like you. And there's been others too that's helped a little bit, but you've been the mainstay that's helped with the booth and we definitely appreciate that. So really you've kind of, you've, you've put me out of business on making it to the Vegas show, but I keep telling Dave and probably would have been this, this probably would have been the year if it wasn't for COVID, I was going to try to get out there and, uh, I've never been to it, and while I have no interest in shooting it, I do have an interest in just being a part of it and seeing it and everything. Yeah, but, I mean, like, I mean, being here in Utah, for, for, from where I'm at to Vegas is literally, it's only a seven-hour drive. And that's if we're stopping every once in a while so my kids can go to the bathroom on the way. But, I mean, you know, Dave is just a, you know, probably three hours north of me. For Dave, it's probably nine, 10 hour drive total. And, you know, seeing as how I'm there to begin with anyway, to, you know, to shoot my bow and compete, there's, there was absolutely no reason for, for me not to, you know, put myself in the booth and help and help Dave with, with, with what, with, with whatever he needed. I mean, in the past, you, you know, sometimes he's been there all alone and he's, he's never even had a spare moment to, you know, to even go take a, you know, a drink break or go get some food or whatever it may be, because there's, you know, there's always so much traffic through that trade show in Vegas. Every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so more people and more people come through the booth and we get you know, more interest and more questions and sell more releases. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I've saved his bacon by any means, but, you know, just having me in the booth with him, having that second body, you know, to run the show, if he has to, if he has to step aside for him for a moment, um, I think, I think it's been a big help to him. And as I said, you know, being there anyway, as a competitor, you know, there's no reason why I can't be there to, you know, to help out, you know, a sponsor that has been, has been my, my longest tenured sponsor by far. I mean, you know, I belong to several different staffs and, you know, in, in other years past, like boning, for example, I've helped run their booth, um, in Vegas. And, uh, you know, there's no reason for me to not be there to kind of fly the, fly the flag and represent hotshot there with Dave in the booth. It, in typical Dave, he's always, um, reluctant to accept people's help not because he doesn't want or appreciate the help he hates to feel like he's burdening someone and i think i finally have gotten through to him because it doesn't matter if it's the ata show or the vegas show or any other show or shoot that we might be wanting to attend there's always 
staff members that would love to be able to go and help in the booth because uh well while it is work I, i'm sure that you you'll agree you get to talk to so many people and meet people when you work in those booths it's, it's just it's just well worth the time the investment of time to to help in a booth or help run a booth or even run one at a show and i think he's finally getting that i i could tell you firsthand that he appreciates your help at that show like big time i mean i mean absolutely i mean you know, when you look at it purely from a a contractual perspective, um, with the amount of time and money and effort that Hotshot has invested in me as a pro staff member over the last you know decade or nearing a decade now, um, the very least I can do is you know to work a booth for a weekend every year and. Uh, try in some small way um to pay back all of that um all of the resources that have been put towards me um you know to help me in my my ventures as a as as a competitor and as a representative so um i i thoroughly enjoy that environment um i i wouldn't normally consider myself a a, a quote unquote people person but in that particular environment you know, surrounded by, you know, lifelong friends in the archery industry to see people, you know, once or twice a year at an event like Vegas or ATA or the Mark 3D Nationals in Redding, California, you know, when, when you're running, when you're working a booth for one of your sponsors at these events, um, it's a great opportunity to, you know, to talk with people, to catch up with friends, um, to exchange um, tips, information, you know, talk about what's new in the industry, um, share your feelings on a new product or a new regulation that's being implemented in competition or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a, a, a social butterfly, but in that particular environment, for whatever reason, I, I, I really enjoy being there. That, that pretty much describes me too. Like I am not a people person and I am not a big uh, public area cram full of people kind of guy. But um, sometimes I'm even dreading like the ATA show. And I know there's a lot of work, but it just never fails. You get in that environment and time flies. And then, you know, every single time I'm driving home thinking, man, I'm glad I did that. We need to make sure, you know, like we did the Iowa Deer and Classic last year, uh, me and a couple other guys and, and my girlfriend. And I mean, it we we absolutely were going to do it again this year and we decided not to because of covid but that's a whole another story of course the elephant in the room that we don't need to uh waste our airtime with but we didn't do it but but anyways i think it's time to get to the real subject and that is uh your first turkey that you got last year and um i think if we talk about the story as a whole that it's it's just kind of an interesting story it is to me and the reason it is i got to follow along i won't say firsthand but through your messages and us talking back and forth um about really what turned into your quest to kill a turkey i mean you were determined to kill him with a bow and you did make it happen but it wasn't easy and so um i'd really like for the listeners to kind of hear your story but we need to start in the beginning and you've already mentioned but but 
um, you live in Utah, which is not exactly a state. A turkey that, mecca. It, right. That's not <laughs> something that pops up in a whole lot of people's mind when they're talking, thinking about turkeys. But um, why don't you just briefly kind of go over what you have to go through just to get a tag to start off with? Yeah. So, I mean, this has been a long time coming. And, you know, when you compare a state like Utah to where you're at in Missouri, where, you know, from everything I've read and seen and spoken with people about, I mean, those birds are, they're, they're, they're pretty plentiful on, uh, in that part of the country. Whereas out here, you know, it's simply not the case. I mean, just, just geography alone, um, is not real conducive to, you know, to the success of, of, of Turkey. I mean, where I live, I'm just the elevation here alone. I'm about 5,600 feet here. And, uh, it's, if, it, if it's not mountainous terrain, it's high desert. And, um, it's not lush and green and beautiful like you see in every turkey hunting YouTube video that's that's out there. It's it's ugly. It's nasty. It's barren. Um, it's not what you picture when you think about bow hunting turkeys or hunting turkeys in general. It doesn't matter if it's with a with a bow or a firearm. But um, my my journey to kill a turkey really started like it wasn't even on my radar. The turkey was something that I had absolutely zero interest in whatsoever. Growing up as, you know, a, like I'm 100% a mule deer guy. You know, people hear Utah, and they think about elk, you know, and Utah is famous for elk hunting. But I'm 35 years old and I've only had one legitimate elk tag my entire life. And I've, st- I've to this day, I've never harvested an elk. And um, the whole turkey thing for me, like it. That that seed wasn't even planted until I became a member of the Hotshot Pro staff. Um, you know, I it was 2013, 2014 when I'm brought on board. And so I start cultivating these relationships with people like you. And when I follow, when I look at what's on Robin Park's social media every spring, it's bird after bird after bird after bird. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, Gosh, is it that can't be that hard? This guy kills <laughs> this, this this guy kills five, six, seven, eight birds a year. And so it was at that time I was like, you know what, I'm gonna start applying for a turkey tag. And when I say applying, it's for me as a resident, it's just like anything else. In order to secure a tag, we have to go through an application process. And it's, you know, a bonus point system, draw odds and and, and all of that. So it's not like, yeah, we, we have a general season over the counter Turkey tag that can be purchased. The problem with that tag is it's well after the prime Turkey season. I mean, I'm still such a, a, a Turkey rookie that I don't even know if you can, if you could call it the Turkey's rut, but um, you know, the limited entry, turkey season is is during that time and birds are very few and far between here and as a result so are tags and i was actually pretty fortunate and lucky in 2014 to draw a limited entry tag um 
for the state of Utah. And the units for Turkey, there's five limited entry units that divide up the entire state. I mean, state of Utah is pretty big. And uh, so when you take the entire state and divide it into just five units, um, yeah, you have a lot of ground to hunt. But, you know, when you're, again, you're thinking about Utah, you're thinking about either, you know, snow-capped peaks or red rock desert. And somewhere in the middle of that is where you'll find turkeys. And when I drew that tag in 2014, I wanted to make sure that it was a, it was a successful hunt. And so I was able to secure, uh, you know, some private land. I had a landowner that was willing to let me on his property, and I was the only hunter on that property. And it took me, at the time, from where I lived to drive to this farm, it was like a two-hour drive. And so every morning I would get up at like two and drive two hours to get to this property to make sure that I could get walked in there, get the blind set up before, you know, before these turkeys start flying down out of the tree, come down to the breakfast table. And for, I want to say it was like 14, 15, 16 days in a row, I made this two-hour drive to this farm every morning. And every morning, I would set up the blind in this place where, okay, I saw these birds right here the day before. So I'm going to set up the blind here. And every day for 14, 15, 16 days, whatever it was, every single day, these turkeys did the complete opposite or something different of what they had done the day before. Um, I learned really quickly that just because a turkey has a brain the size of a lima bean doesn't mean they're not smart. Um, it was it was pretty it, it was pretty disheartening day after day after day to be continually outwitted by by these birds, and it became it, like it became personal. Like it wasn't just like. Oh, I didn't feel my tag. This sucks. Like it became like that. Like I had a vendetta against these birds and this continued up until last year. So in 2014, as I mentioned, I drew the limited entry tag, but it's pretty difficult to secure that tag. So the following, the subsequent years, so 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, Every single one of those years, I was purchasing the general over-the-counter turkey tag. And that particular tag, it's not restricted to a certain area. They're actually statewide, but at, at the same time, it's it's past that, that prime calling season. And year after year after year, I would spend all this time, money, and effort trying to trying to get a bird within bow range sitting in the blind. And I could never, ever, ever make it happen. Year after year, it was failure after failure after failure. And I, I was just, I was, I was getting so upset and frustrated to the point where I was like, <laughs> you know what? If this does finally happen, I'm going to be one and done. I'm, I'm going to do it just to do it, just so I can have a big, beautiful, puffed, you know, stu stuffed turkey. Uh, and then I'll, and then I'll probably never do it again because it had frustrated me to that point. Yeah, well, I I know, you know, during all this this time period that you're describing, like there was a lot of messages to me, you know, that it was basically, dude, WTF, dude, like I I don't even know, like help me out, 
And honestly, in, in I've talked about it on this podcast, even as recently as is this last year season, because uh, your your description of that first year of getting up, driving two hours, and day after day after day, like that's what I just went through this last. Uh, our the last month of our season here, actually in Illinois. I live in Missouri, but in Illinois, I was driving two hours to hunt the afternoon during our late season, nearly every day, probably four out of five days for almost six weeks straight. And it was becoming this personal vendetta kind of thing because I was exactly like you described, except it was deer. But like I'd be in one stand and I'd be seeing these bucks under a different stand, you know, and then I'd move wherever the wind, you know, would allow me to move. And it was just day after day. It was frustrating, but driving me to keep going. But what I also have talked about is, is I'm guilty of this on social media and it really is kind of a mirror of social media anyways, of what you described as like you saying, you know, you're seeing me mow down these birds and just picture after picture every spring. And it, it all seems like it's rainbows and unicorns if you just look at my social media pages. But what I don't do a very good job of describing on social media is the frustrations and all the time and effort and money, like you said, that I that is spent between birds and um, how many hours of hunting goes into every single bird. Yeah, sure, I get some birds you know that might be the first hunt of the season or whatever and they and they do come easy but you know that doesn't mean if i post a picture two weeks later that who knows how many hours i've spent hunting and how many days and how many hours in the truck has taken place and you know no one could figure that out by looking at my social media and it's like i said it's kind of that's kind of the the mirror of social media anyways i think that's what a, a whole lot of people do with their social media is it's just the good parts of their life that you see and um it's kind of how my turkey season probably portrayed to a lot of people and the amount of time and effort that i put into spring season is is well it's just ridiculous you know most people can't do it and most people aren't willing to do it they don't love turkey hunting enough to do it and i don't blame them and i you know i have a good a job with great flexibility and you know, I've worked overtime in my job the last every week for the last at least month and I'm doing that so that here in three weeks from now that I could start being away from work you know and of course that's something people don't realize so I, I definitely get that that part of it I especially feel you on the every single day for what what do you say? Sixteen days in a row, or whatever, driving two hours each way. Because I'm gonna be honest, two hours is a short drive when it comes to me getting to my hunting spots. Uh, I've been I've went to Nebraska up to three different times during the turkey season, and that's nine and a half hours each way. And I've done it three times in a single season trying to fill my tags. So that should that kind of paints a great picture. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that's part of why I wanted for you to tell your story about this turkey it was just so people got a feel for what you went through leading up to that day. I mean, it's a, a great perspective to hear. And I think a lot of people need to hear it. And you know, you could almost replace Turkey with the word elk in your quest to kill one. And, you know, that's what a lot of people go through to kill an elk. And, 
Um, just because it's a turkey doesn't mean that there isn't some dedication and effort involved. So I'm glad you painted yeah, that I picture. Mean, I think I think turkeys they don't they don't have the grandeur and the spectacle as you know a giant buck or a big bull elk just simply because you know a you know physically you know the the size of the animal I, I think has a lot to do with how people perceive turkey hunting because i because i've talked to people and they're like oh it's just a bird like it's like it's like it's no big deal but i the whole turkey thing man it is i had just as many emotions and butterflies and excitement when you know i would see a turkey 400 yards away puffed up and little by little by little you know they start working their way in and then for who knows whatever reason unbeknownst to you most times circumstances beyond your control it it vanishes in a minute and every everything evaporates and so you go from it's like it's like any other form of hunting you go from you go from the highest of highs you've ever been to the lowest of lows in in an instant and emotionally and mentally um it takes a toll on a guy like i remember if i go back to that hunt in 2014 my first turkey hunt and i started looking at the circumstances surrounding it and i had this epiphany it was like here i am on private land i'm the only hunter on the property and i still can't make this happen like the realization of just how difficult it actually was in comparison to what a lot of people do see on social media and on hunting TV shows and on YouTube where, you know, all, all social media ever has been and ever will be is the highlight reel of somebody's life. As like, like you said, you, you're only showcasing, you know, the good parts, what you want people to see. You're not really, you're not really including your struggles and your disappointment and your frustration into that story. And so for someone on the outside looking in, yeah, it does appear like th th that was, that was my initial thought. I was like, gosh, how hard can this be? Look at this guy just whacking them one after one after one. And here I am completely unable to, to, to get even remotely close to make it happen. And that was my story for six years. <laughs> Until after six years of struggle and lessons learned in 2020, as garbage of a year as it was, and we all know why, um, that very first turkey I was able to put an arrow through, that was easily top two or three highlights of, you know, of, of my entire year. Um, it, it closed a chapter um in my hunting career that if i'm being honest i i didn't know that <laughs> i'd ever be able to make it happen just because six years in a row of trying to you know, harvest a turkey a bird um with a bow we, we, yeah. we really should highlight that because we've kind of mentioned it but we really haven't highlighted that fact was that that you were determined to use a bow not not a gun and yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm an archery only guy. I'm 35 years old here in Utah at the time. I you could start hunting when you turn 14. So, I my entire life 
my hunting career from 14 until now. I have never hunted with a rifle and muzzleloader or shotgun for anything, whether it be deer or whatever. Um, it's nothing I have against the method, the weapon. It just, it doesn't interest me and it doesn't excite me. Stick and string is who I am and it's what I do. And I had, I had friends and family tell me that, like, why don't you just, why don't you just take a shotgun? Well, A, I don't even own one. And B, it's, for me, it felt like it wouldn't have been as gratifying. Like I needed to close this chapter by doing this with a bow and arrow. So I guess I probably should have brought that up earlier, but I'm not. No, I mean, we, we did kind of briefly mention it, but to put it in perspective, um, I'm quite a bit older than you are because I'm, I'm 51 right now, but back when I was a teenager in, in, in junior high and then through high school, here where I lived in Missouri, it was the turkey place in the country. Like there was, there was no place in the country better than what we had in Missouri when I was growing up. And, um, I kind of, you know, essentially like you, you're, you're self-taught. I'm, I was self-taught except I didn't have the internet. I didn't have YouTube. I had literally a cassette tape. That's how I learned how to owl hoot and turkey call was a cassette tape by Ray. I who's still around and still a fantastic turkey hunter that is actually from my area in Missouri. But anyways, uh, the point I was getting to is, um, because I had so many turkeys, like I could walk out my door back then and number one, any property that I could hear turkey gobble on, I had permission to go after. So that was great. And so I'd go out after school and I would go call turkeys in and just watch them. And that's how I learned how to, how to hunt. But then what I found was calling them in was one thing, but figuring out how to kill them. And I'm talking about with a shotgun back then was a whole nother thing. It took me a good four or five or maybe even six years of screw ups to finally kill, actually kill one, even though I called in dozens of them, um, to actually kill one with a gun. And so to give you some perspective and give in the listeners, um, you know, some listeners probably can't quite relate. It's just a different time now, but back then for me to take that long and figure out how to kill one with a gun, and and then your time frame, except you're doing it with a bow and not near the turkeys. I, I mean, I'm just telling you, like, I could walk out my back door back then and hear 30 different turkeys gobbling in 30 different directions. That's how good it was. And so I definitely can relate. And then fast forward, um, and, and Logan and I and others have talked on this podcast about my transition from shotgun hunting them to bow hunting them. And that was really just this this transition of my hunting preference in general, I'm like you now, but it's bow or nothing for me. It got to be really easy for me to go out and kill one with a shotgun. And I got really kind of bored with it. So I just made my mind up, well, I'm going to do it with a bow. Well, then it took me another three years or so to to make it happen. And I, and I was hunting, still hunting in Missouri, though not as good as what it once was, but it's pretty damn good still. And I was going to Kansas and it still took me this learning curve of about three years where everything finally came together and I kind of got things figured out. Of course, you never have them figured out, but really I think it's pretty remarkable. I, I've never told you this, but 
to me, honestly, for you to to have that accomplishment and that learning curve and it being Utah where the turkey numbers are just nothing like what we have in the Midwest is is really quite an accomplishment and, and in my mind remarkable. And, you know, you, you need to, you, you should take some credit because you spent all that time and effort and, and unless you're holding back on me, you, you never missed one. You made good on the first good opportunity that you had and you, you made it count, right? Yeah, I've never, I've only had one opportunity to draw back on a Tom and it was, it was April of 2020. and. Um, you know, it was, that was the first time that I had been able to call a turkey within, um, you know, within acceptable bow range. You know, there had been times where I'd have them at 150 yards, 100 yards, 80 yards, but they would never, they would never close that distance. And a lot of that too is just simple, simple inexperience with with calling. I mean, I'll, I've just been using you know some slate calls that you know some generic slate calls that I that I find at Cabela's or wherever, and you know they all come with instructional DVDs and and, and things like that. But there's a certain there's a certain artistry and a nuance when it when it when it comes to calling turkey, and to this day, I looking back on my hunt last year, I have no idea what I was quote unquote saying to this bird. Like I was just, I was just trying to mimic the noises that I see on YouTube and that I see on other people's social media. And, um, I think a lot of my failures over the last six years can be traced back to either, you know, not very attractive calling, calling too much, um, making the wrong sounds. Um, things like that and there's just there's there's so many different aspects of it it's not just you know making noise on a slate call and they come running to a dinner bell you know when i first started i assumed that's how it was and that's simply not the case yeah it can be but i i do think what you said is is an aspect of turkey hunting that is kind of I don't know if the word I'm wanting to say is overlooked, but certainly not realized that's the better way of putting it by newer turkey hunters is it just takes hunting experience with turkeys to to get this encyclopedia built up in your head of different situations and reading the mood of the turkey, reading the situation, what time of year is it, how is he acting, what call should I try, what sounds, you know, not just what physical call, a slate of mouth call, but, you know, what sounds should I make to him, and how often, how loud, and and there's no magic formula, because every bird on any given day is different, and, and even within the day, you know, what a specific gobbler wanted to hear an hour ago might be totally different, you know, this hour. And, uh, I, I, I'm not really sure how many years I've been turkey hunting. 
but I can tell you that the number of things, these tricks in my head that I try on turkeys, it, 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 it's a long list, a very long list. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is sometimes it just does, doesn't always work. There's sometimes there's nothing you can do to make a turkey decide he wants to come towards you that last, whether it's hundred yards or, you know, sometimes it's just the fact of the matter. He's out there at 50 yards and that's pretty easy shotgun shot these days, but it's certainly not a shot necessarily for a bow. Not that it can't be done, but I'm used to five yards, not 50 yards. And, um, I see a lot of people on social media just talking about, you know, it kind of like your messages to me, like you, you were like, dude, help me, help me understand what I should, what I'm doing wrong. It's not that you're doing something wrong. You're just not figuring out what was right for that turkey on that given day and minute of the time. And uh, you've got enough time under your belt now that I, in whether you realize it or not, I mean, just the way you just made those statements is that you understand that now, and it it'll take you a long time, probably a lifetime of turkey hunting. And you still, you're never going to have it figured out. I did just, just when I think I'm feeling cocky and confident and I'm packing my truck thinking I'm going to have a bird down tomorrow. Here I am six or seven days into the hunt and I'm doing that drive. Like you're talking about that many days in a row. And I want to just take a brick and smash it on my forehead. So <laughs> I, I definitely get it. And that's just, that's hunting in general, like you said, but turkey hunting it is that's the way it is. And I, I've summed it up even to my girlfriend when she expressed an interest in tagging along. I'm like, look, it it can be really fun, but it can be hours and hours and hours of sheer boredom just for that few minutes of just sheer excitement. And I think that's kind of, you know, listening to you talk about how you felt when you seen the turkey coming and and knowing that it was closer. I mean, there is nothing like it. Tell me if I'm wrong. When no, you dude, when I you mean, lay eyes on that turkey and you realize, oh shit, oh shit, he's coming to me. Yeah, I mean that moment. So fast forward, you go back, go from 2014 when I first started to 2020. Yeah, because I, I really want you to I kind mean, of lay down the details of how the hunt unfolded yeah, for you. Abso- a- absolutely. Yeah. So that first that first year, as I've said a handful of times now in this conversation, I was I was on private land, and it, it you know, I, there were plenty of birds on that property. You know, it just you know the stars never aligned, and a lot of that is just inexperience the the overwhelming majority of us of it is is inexperience and so the following five years um i was on public land in an area of eastern utah where i live that is legitimate postcard what you think about when you hear the word utah red rock sand sagebrush vistas plateaus of weird shaped red rocks um that's where i'm turkey hunting i'm tur- i've been i've been turkey hunting the last 5 years in an area that a river runs through this desert and it's the only water for miles and miles and miles in every single direction and the sagebrush surrounding that river i'm 6 foot 3 there 
are patches of sagebrush along the edge of that river that are taller than I am. And so year after year, when you can hear these birds from inside my blind, I can hear them responding to calls, but I can never see them. I never see them due to how thick the sagebrush is. Um, I can hear them walking around me, but I never see them. That went on year after year after year, like so close, the, the, the cliche, right? So close, but yet so far. And 2020, I changed, I, I changed my strategy a little bit. I, I moved the blind from an area that I have been hunting in the past that where I see tracks on the ground, I hear birds, I know they're there, but nothing's happening. And after the countless private messages that you and I have exchanged, I finally had the epiphany of, you know, it, it may sound obvious now to, and especially to those listening who are quote unquote seasoned or veteran turkey hunters. The whole time I was hunting, or I guess not the whole time, but so from 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, I, I missed a vital step in, in, in my preparation. I never secured or located where these birds were roosting. And finally, in 2020, in this area that I've been hunting now for five years, I found the sacred tree. I found the magical cottonwood that these birds have been roosting in. And my best friend was with me at the time. Um, it was along the edge of this river, and it was getting dark, way too dark to see pins or even shoot. But out of nowhere, we started hearing that thunderous flap of wings. And we look across the river, and here they go one by one up into the tree. And so we sit there for another half hour, half hour or so and wait until all these birds are in the tree. We mark the location of that tree on our phones and um, started making a game plan. First of all, I was apparently I was on the wrong side of the river all these years. I mean, it's not a big river. I mean, it's only probably 20, 30, 40 yards wide and only a couple feet deep. But I've been on the wrong side of the river this whole time. And finally, I start checking off boxes. Okay, here's, here's where they roost. Okay, they're on this side of the river. And a day or two later, cross the river, you know, strap, strap my blind, my pre-mills blind to the back of my pack and uh, walked through this river. I set up my blind. It's pretty close to that roosting tree, probably closer than it should have been, I don't know, 100 yards or so away from this, from this tree. And I, I set up my blind between a couple tamarisks, a couple big bushes. And um, it just I put the stakes in the ground, I left the blind there, and I backed out. Uh, two, two or three days later, I hadn't been in there, so I, I stayed away for two or three days. Because I was worried, I was paranoid that when I went in there and set up the blind that close to the tree, even though they, you know, the birds weren't in the tree at the time, I was worried that they, you know, they, they saw that or they took note of that. So I stayed away for two or three days and then went back in. Um, not a morning hunt, actually. It was, a, it was afternoon. Um, I think by the time I got out there, it was probably three or four in the afternoon. And um, 
So I, I go into stealth mode and start sneaking in there, you know, being really careful and cautious of my surroundings. Cause that was one of the first things I learned about Turkey was I had no idea just how incredible their vision is. And, uh, Again, that's one of those lessons that I learned over the years. And so that day, I'm, I'm very cautiously sneaking into my blind. I open up the blind. I pull the decoys out. And I've only got a couple of decoys. I don't even have a Tom decoy. I've got, I think, one hen and two jakes. And I set those decoys out 10 yards in front of my blind. And you know, crawl back in the blind, zip, zip up the zipper, sit on the stool knock an arrow, put my bow in the stand. I just sit there in silence for about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And then I let out a couple little clucks with the slate call. And then it was almost instantaneous. I hear a gobble from 150, 200 yards away. So I'm sitting there. And I'm having this internal battle in my head. Like, do I keep talking? Do I not? Am I if if I call again, is it going to be too much? Am I going to scare them away? And that's and, and again, that's that's the inexperience. And so about a minute goes by, and I make a noise again. And then with my naked eye, a hundred yards away, in some quaky quaky aspens, I see that great big bright red that we all know when you know he's coming, and. That was the first thing I saw from about 100, 100 yards, 120 yards. Is I see, the, I, I see the red poking through the trees, and then it, and then it vanishes. It disappears just as quick as I saw it. Thirty seconds later, I make one more little yelp, and then I see him again. This time, he's seventy-five yards, and this goes on for the next, I don't know, five, ten minutes. Just little by little, he's coming. Once he got to within fifty yards. I put the call away and pulled the bow off the stand, clipped my uh, my purple hotshot hookup release to that D loop, and I'm just waiting. And it was, I'm, and I know you've experienced this, but I couldn't believe just how fast it happened. Once once he was within 20 yards, he was on a bead and. He he come into my decoys. He went to the he went to one of the Jakes first, you know, kind of puffed up, got his fan all strutted, and then he went to the hen. Then he did that little circle thing that they do. He did that a couple times. And I knew that just based on my speed and my setup, I knew that at 10 yards, um, I was gonna have to use probably my my, my 30 pin or so. And um Gosh, it happened so fast. I remember just turning broadside and, and pause going back to previous conversations that we've had that I'm I'm sure at times I just annoyed the hell out of you. But in <laughs> one of those one of those messages I remember reading, you know, you telling me, you know, where to put my pin on this bird because they're so deceiving when they're when when they're in strut. You know, there's four or five, maybe six inches or more of back feathers, three, four or five inches of breast feathers out on the front. And I remember drawing back and putting my pin on this bird. It's like, okay, wing connects to the body. And 
before I knew it, it was over. That arrow was on the way. Um, he took one or two steps and I mean, it was over. It was, it happened so fast that that it happened faster than any mule deer hunt, any pronghorn antelope hunt I've had. It, it was, it was, it was the blink of an eye and like it was this enormous relief and it, it, it was simultaneous. It was, it was, it was a relief and a celebration. And then just this, this overwhelming inundation of emotion like it it finally happened outside of my wife you were the very first person that i texted to say guess what just happened <laughs> and um just because you have you have been every step every step of this journey from 2014 to 2020 the culmination of it i mean you've been you, you've been my mentor, my instructor, my support crew, my my instructor, D, all of the above, whatever what whatever labels and adjectives you want to use. I mean, that bird that took me six years to finally put an arrow through, that bird was just as much your bird as it was mine. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. I do know we talked a lot and I you know, you outlined situations and, and, you know, specifics of the setups, even, even to the point of diagrams. And yeah, I remember sending yeah. you screen screenshots and pictures yeah. be like, Hey, the blinds here, I can hear them here. What am I doing wrong? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, you know, I couldn't, re- I, I definitely remember certain things that I told you no, you can't do that. One was I told you you got to get a male decoy of some kind, and I do remember you know part of uh, was you know get your decoys closer to the blind, and I definitely remember talking to you about shot placement, and we talk about that on this podcast a lot because I just think it's so important. In fact, the last last episode, um, which I don't know if you've heard, you probably haven't because I know you're not a big podcast listener, but um, even though I've talked about it a lot, that was one of the major topics of the last episode of this podcast. And I, I know I was just pumped up when you, you know, whenever he, you sent me those first few pictures and I'm like, remind you, you get some good pictures no matter what it takes. And I can also remember threatening to come up there and just help you. Oh, a couple uh, times. A couple you times. Said, yeah. And I, like, and I was like, serious right. too. Like I was ready to get my ass up there and. Um, it had been a long drive, but man, it had been worth it. I, even though the hunting's that tough, I, I still, to, to be honest, I like, I would really like to come up there and hunt with you one time just for the experience of that back backdrop, that scenery that that's what, what got me started going to Texas. You know, here I live in the Midwest and I, I just wanted to kill one and done in Texas because it's just a, a new environment, totally different setting. And, and, there's just something to be said about, you know, that. And so I I still feel like that's something I want to do with you is just come up and turkey hunt with you. And especially if you yeah. get on that place with that one rooster, because I'm telling you that rooster is gold. In fact, you I, I can remember when you texted me and you're like, dude, I, fi- I found the rooster. And I'm like, well, that's gold then. You know, like it's going to be gold from now on. And 
it just is in those types of settings. It doesn't matter it's what if it's western Kansas or if it's up in Nebraska for me or in down there in Texas, it's it's just like what it's kinda like you're talking about, like if you're not around that water source, you're like practically in the desert and that's how Texas is and there are no roost trees except around the water and you find those roost trees and you have found turkeys, period. And that's kind of the setting that you found and I love those afternoon hunts around roost. I they're we well, yeah, that was, yeah, go ahead. So that, that was one of the, you know, one of the lessons I learned is that it seemed like early in the morning when, I mean, year after year, day after day, all these years, I was trying to make this happen early in the morning. Cause right. That's what you see on YouTube, right? You see, you see the guy with the camera in his blind and the sun comes up over the horizon and, you know, like picturesque, right? Well, my experience was early in the mornings. When these birds come down out of a tree, they are on, they are on a mission. They are on autopilot. They, it's very difficult to coax them away from that morning routine. And then that's when I started to realize that the afternoon hunt, when the birds had kind of gone their separate ways, they were kind of meandering and wandering aimlessly. It was a lot easier to pull them towards me away from the, the the group than early in the morning and i don't know if that's been your experience oh, yeah, or not. absolutely that i i have no problem telling people that first of all we can't hunt in the evenings here where i live in missouri and also across the river from me where i hunt in illinois it's morning until noon only or maybe it's one o'clock I, I forget the exact time but um but i will always say Evenings are my favorite if it's legal. My second favorite is is going to be from about 9 in the morning until noon, 1 o'clock, something like that. And, you know, 9 in the morning basically means a few hours after fly-down time. And it's exactly... you. you it seems like you read about turkey hunting or you watch something about turkey hunting. It's all about this image portrayed of a turkey gobbling at you on the roost and he's answering he flies down and boom you kill him and i i I can tell you that's only happened to me i could count it on one hand how many times it's happened to me so out of the uh, however many turkeys i've killed now literally on one hand i can count it i i if i'm on a long hunt like out of state or somewhere or like you were talking about you know 16 days in a row i'll just sleep in some mornings I, i will just throw the white flag up and say i need to rest so i'm i'm giving up the morning and i'll hit it hard midday until dark you know if it's an evening state and i think that probably had a lot to do with your success you know in in i don't know if you you got a tag or if you're going this spring because we haven't even talked about that but i i think it's even more prevalent in the in for mountain birds and birds that like where I go in Nebraska, it's big open territory. And I think the more open it is and the more and or being out in the mountains, those birds travel. And when they fly down, that's what they want to do. They want to get headed to wherever it is they go during the day. But if you could be there waiting on them when they come back, you're already where they want to go. I mean, you're in their way already. That's the way I always describe it. I want to be exactly. in their way. And, 
And that's why I placed the blind where I did. So I don't know if, like I said, you know, my blind was within a hundred yards of that roost tree. And I don't know if that's, if that's sketchy or not, if that's cutting it too close, but I knew that they were going to have to walk past me at some point to get to the tree, whether or not it was, it was going to be too low a light to actually, you know, get a shot off. I needed, I needed that verification in my own mind to say, okay, this is what they're doing. And, you know, I've, I've, I just pulled it up. I'm looking at it on my phone here. And the very first picture that I took of this bird on the ground, um, when I go into the details, um, of that image, it says 6:20 PM. And so I imagine it 6:15 is, is when the arrow <laughs> is when the arrow went through him. But, um, I don't know if that's if that correlates with your experience or not, as far as that late afternoon, early evening. Um, I mean, if that sounds about right. Yeah, it, it's really more about the specific scenario because I've had evening hunts where you know they're coming towards a roost from a lot of different directions, and so my goal is to be there before birds are headed to the roost, but make them hear me as they're headed that way. So I don't need to be necessarily, I'm not sitting under the roost. I just want to be close enough that birds headed to the roost will hear me. And that's kind of what you did basically, whether you knew it or not, that's what you, what your setup lended to. But I've had set, I mean, I have had setups where I'm so close to the roost because there's no other way to set up that if I don't kill one, and they end up flying up without me having one come in. Like I have to let it get good and dark before I can leave. That's how close I am. Exactly. Yeah. But then in other situations, I can't even see the roost. You know, I could barely hear them fly up to the roost. And roost means a lot of different things, and depending on the place too. You know, like you're talking about that single cottonwood. I've had those situations. I've had other situations where the roost is a long wooded ridge and it could be any number of the trees on that ridge you know so it's a big bigger wider situation and then other times it might be uh you know two three or maybe six big trees together that's what the the quote-unquote roost is but um the the problem gets to be if you get too close is if you want to hunt them in the morning it gets to be a lot sketchier getting in there and so I try to have that buffer like you set yours up to where you're you're fairly close to it but yet you're not right on top of it and um in those big open areas like you're hunting man I I probably would shock you if you if you we do get to hunt together how often how loud does I call because um at those open area birds number one they're not afraid to travel which you've got that figured out and they'll come from a long way and they'll answer from a long way and so I just you know, I don't want to, one to just happen to walk by me. Like, if there's any, if he can hear me, I want him to hear me. That's my, that's really my strategy is what I'm getting at. And once one answers me, then I kind of taper it all down and, you know, figure out how loud I should be calling and how often. And that always changes, like we always talked about. But your hunt is all, is really ended up being a textbook evening hunt. And, whether you knew it or not, like everything fell into place perfect because everything you did 
made it perfect. Like you made all the right decisions, just like you said, you know, you don't know if you're making the right decisions till it's all over. And then you're taking this, you know, you're all shaky and taking a breath. And I mean, let's face it, you know, you're probably saying to yourself, holy shit, I can't believe that just happened. And like, and, and I trust me from, I'm not, you know, throwing this out to brag, but I've lost count how many I've killed with a bow. It's somewhere around 65, I think. But it doesn't matter. Like, every single one of those, that's how I feel. And I kind of lost that feeling with a shotgun. My kills, it was more like, all right, another one down. And I kind of lost that. And that's what drove me to back to the bow. And that, and that has just really become my passion and what's fun. And um, that that feeling, everything you described is exactly what drives me every spring to just keep doing it over and over and over. And as much as I can, I just can't get enough of it. Yeah, see, and that's the point. That, and, and that's what, that's the interesting part of this is because earlier in the conversation, when I was getting my ass kicked continually year after year, especially after that first year in 2014, when on paper I had, you know, looking at it on paper, I had in my mind at the time that the, I had the perfect setup. I was the only hunter on private property. I had unlimited time, you know, you check all the boxes, right? And I still wasn't able to make it happen. And so at that point in time, when I was like, okay, I have to make this happen, but I'm just going to do it once and never do it again. I just, I just, I just want one just to have one. And now that I've actually done it, like I can't ever see myself not ever chasing turkeys again. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said that because that's kind of what the question I was going to use to kind of close the podcast up was. Because in my head, I meant I mentally marked that that you'd said mate, it was just going to be a one and done thing. Like you just wanted that accomplishment, and I was going to ask you, like, now that you experience that, can you honestly tell me that you don't want to come? You don't want to be chasing turkeys forever now. Oh, dude, I like so badly. I want to be in a position. Hopefully, you know, hopefully in the in the near future, but I want to be able to be in that position where I can set aside the time and be like, okay, I'm going to go to Nebraska or I'm going to go to Missouri or wherever it may be. And just, and try and learn as much as I can about different environments, different species of birds. I mean, the, the turkeys we have out here are kind of a, they're kind of a hybrid between like, like a Rio and I don't know, maybe Merriam. But like, yeah, that would be my guess is a, is a re, probably predominantly Rio, but with some Miriam mixed in. And, you know, now it's like, okay, well now I want an Eastern. Okay. Well now I want this. And so, you know, it's, you know, I would, I, I see pictures of these great big Easterns all over social media, Instagram and Facebook. And I don't know if they are physically a bigger bird than what i have out here but they look enormous and i don't know my i don't i don't know how if you would call the turkey that i ended up with a, a big bird i mean probably not uh if i oh, remember I, right I, what did did you weigh yours i don't remember i don't remember weighing him um but how long was the beard do you remember that like, like nine yeah i mean it was a mature bird for sure and 
yes, I would call it a big bird. Now, I used to weigh every single bird that I killed and, and you know, measure the spurs and the beard. And I'm not saying I don't ever weigh any anymore, but I'll only weigh one if I pick it up and think, wow, what this thing must must be big. But Easterns in general are general are definitely bigger than than Rios and Miriams in, in, in every attribute, uh, beard length, spur length, and and weight. Uh, a bird here in Missouri and Illinois, uh, twenty two or twenty three pounds is you know pretty common, pretty pretty, I would say average for a mature bird. You know that's generally going to be beard of eight to ten inches, something like that, and then. I've, I've killed him as Otis decides to, my hound is uh, deciding to join us on the podcast. But I, the biggest, I've, I've killed two of them that have weighed 27 and a half. And the longest beard was 11 and a half or 11 three quarters. I mean, and that's, that's ridiculously big. You know, you, you see people talk about 28 pounders and 30 pounders. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it's kind of the old Facebook, you know, scale weight kind of joke yeah that's and and that's the thing is because i didn't where this is my first turkey i really didn't have anything to gauge or base that off of in comparison so all i have is what i see on the internet when when you've got all these people saying oh yeah 11 12 inch beards inch and a half two inch spurs and i'm here i am with this with this bird on the ground and his one spur was maybe I don't know, maybe half an inch, maybe. And then the, I think he, he must've been a scrapper because the other one was broken. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and, I don't, and that's I don't know really, that's, that's especially if he's got Miriams in them, uh, uh, a half a spur is pretty typical for a Miriam. Now Rios can get pretty long and sharp, but, um, you know, even there's too many people claiming two inch spurs on Facebook too. It, uh, a big Eastern, you know, if he gets above an inch, he, he's pretty damn big. And, you know, seven eighths, half inch to seven eighths, three quarters, you know, those are the kind of typical measurements for, you know. So what about, what about that one, that picture you posted a year or so ago from Texas where you had, you posted a picture of one of your birds from Texas hanging upside down by the spurs on a tree limb how big were those yeah i think those were uh truly one of them was an inch and seven eighths and one was an inch and three quarters if i remember right and that bird actually uh i really i'm not much a record book entries and yeah especially turkeys i mean to me he's either a jake or he's a mature bird and everything else is luck of the draw but I did weigh that one because he was exceptionally heavy for for a Rio, and he was 23, a little over 23 pounds, and everything about him was big for a Rio, and I knew that. And out of curiosity, I went looking at the Texas state records. It would have been a state record. Uh, I don't remember overall or if it was just archery. I, I don't recall, but th- that kind of puts it in perspective that that particular bird was way up there. Um, yeah, that, that, that's yeah. so impressive. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, like I said, I never actually put mine on the scale, but he was every bit of, he had to have been 20. Like, yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't say he was over 20, but he was every bit of 20. I mean, just 
looking at your picture and everything, you know, that's a bird that I would guess to be 17 to 20 pounds. And um, it, if it was at Eastern, then he probably would have been over 20 pounds. But, you know, he's not an Eastern. So, it, uh, yeah, I, you, that bird you killed was a big bird. And... So, I guess, I guess what I need to do is I just need to, I just need to write it down and, and make a goal and make it happen and make the whatever it would be 14 hour drive to Missouri and and see if we can make this happen well I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't I, recommend Missouri to be honest our our state we have some very good hunting still in pockets uh the access that I have in Missouri is just a shadow of how good it used to be it, it's just okay it a lot of bad hatches and um I'm not saying you're not welcome to come here and I'm not telling you we wouldn't be able to get you a bird, but I sure do like to hunt Illinois and Kansas. Kansas has been down a little too, but Nebraska, there, there's a lot of good choices that, uh, as you've seen from my videos, has lots of turkeys. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've told you I've before, got, man, make it happen. And, I, and I'll, yeah, and I'll I've take you. I've got a friend here in Utah that every year he's, you know, he's, he's in a position to where he can make this happen. And that's, and that's a, and that's a big variable of it. I've never, I've never hunted out of state, even for deer or anything. I've never, I've never been in that position to where I can either a take the time and, or B, you know, afford to go. And so I've got a friend who, goes to Nebraska every year for Turkey. And he always, every year he connects. And I think Nebraska would probably be pretty doable. That's probably just, just geography based. I mean, I think that's, that, that's a spot where we could probably just meet in the middle and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a goal of mine. Like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I, ha I have to eat my words from six years ago when I say, I'm one and done because that's all I've thought about the last couple months is, is waiting for May 3rd, which is the opener of the, not the limited entry, but the general over the counter tag here in Utah, May 3rd, I will actually be in a truck driving back from the NFAA marked 3d nationals in Redding, California. And as soon as I get back home to Utah, I'm, taking the blind back down to the desert to see if I can make it happen in the same spot. So I just don't know. I don't know what to expect having now connected with a bird during that prime season and where it's going to be a little bit later. I don't know if they're going to, I still have so much to learn. I don't know if they change roosts throughout the year or well, when, when roosts are that limited. I mean, chances are that roost is going to be used by some turkeys every year. I mean, Obviously, there it doesn't mean there aren't other trees that they may use, you know, three-fourths of a mile or a mile away or whatever it might be. But I just hearing enough about your situation over those years through our messages, like, I wouldn't hesitate. Zero scouting done, anything, to just be right back in that same spot the first chance you get. That'd be my advice. Okay. Um, it's That's kind of what I was – that's kind of what I was planning on doing. but. Maybe, maybe subconsciously, I was needing some validation from someone such as yourself that that is a good idea. So yeah, that that's what I I would do. I mean, 
let's put it this way. I'm going to Nebraska on the 25th of this month, and I will not be doing any scouting, and I will be in a truck headed up there. And depending on when I go, I don't know that my first hunt will be in the morning. It most likely will be in the afternoon, but I'm going to walk to one of my uh, proven spots from the past, and without any scouting anything, my blind will be popped up. and. I'll get settled in, and I will start belting calls out, and I will expect for birds to answer before it gets dark. And um, it until that doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, then of course it's going to force me to figure out on the fly what's going on, and that's a whole nother, whole nother podcast. Uh, you know, now what? But yeah, I'm looking forward to getting messages from you and hearing about it, and uh, another picture because. The, the first one's the hardest one. That That is really the message of this podcast and really the biggest reason why I, I you know, wanted to talk you into kind of detailing your story is because I think it's great to hear. It, it's fine to hear people talk about me killing turkeys and what I, what works for me, but it's great for people to hear you detail how your first one went and, and the difficulties in it because people they need to relate to that, you know, like we don't just want that unicorns and rainbows, social media picture of turkey hunting. Like I, I want to talk, yeah, you know, about yeah, it all. I mean, and I was, and I, if I'm being honest, like, I feel like I was pretty transparent, you know, during this whole time on my social media about, you know, gosh, you know, this isn't happening and I'm getting frustrated. And I don't necessarily think that, that's the picture I painted was that I was just. No, you definitely did. No, you didn't. And you know what I think drives me to leave out the negatives is because just like you've talked about, like you'd really like to go out of state and someday you will. Well, you know, you got to remember, I'm like, I already said, I'm a lot older than you. My kids are grown up and, you know, I'm to the point in my life where I do have the time that I can take off and, you know, frankly, be able to afford, you know, save up my money and, and want to spend it on that. And so I, I do go a lot of places. It's so I almost feel like bad if I'm complaining on my social media, because you know, someone's going to say, well, it's only the fourth state you've been in this year. Of course, you're going to have a bad hunt, you know? So I, I kind of, I kind of, I guess, leave out the negative for that aspect, but it, it, really doesn't it's not realistic to leave that stuff out like i i do appreciate when i'm when i see people talk about well you know 10th day in a row uh, hopefully it's going to happen that's not complaining yeah. that's just the fact of the matter of that's part of hunting and uh, i I'm, i think i'm going to make a point of really trying to use social media to kind of outline how my spring really goes and you know it'll be great if it goes great and i'm whacking birds every hunt or every other hunt but there's probably going to be a lot of posts that is well here we go again let's let's hope this is better than yesterday kind of thing yeah absolutely i mean it's not you know when you're detailing the events of a hunt you know positive or negative I can't speak for anyone other than me, but it's not, you know, if I make a post that's kind of disheartening in nature or where it's, it's, it's pretty, 
it's pretty obvious that I'm upset. Like it's not, those statements aren't made in an effort to seek sympathy or to, you know, to get people on my side. Oh, you know, poor Brad, this, no, I mean, that's not, that that's not it at all. It's just, it's, it's just me being as open and, and honest as, as I can with the situation. I mean, cause yeah, it is like, I'm, I actually had this conversation with a guy today that um, he's getting, he's brand new into archery. I sold him one of my bows and he's just, you know, he's trying to learn. I took him out to the range today to help him get his bow sighted in because he too is going to buy a general over the counter tag and he's going to try and get a, you know, try and get his first Turkey. But, you know, the conversation I had with him is you, you, you see a lot on social media about people who they'll go out into the mountains and, you know, they'll have an unsuccessful hunt and, you know, they'll, they'll kind of tie a bow on it with, oh, you know, it's not about, it's about the experience. It's <laughs> yeah. about this, yeah. it, but, uh, but I'm a results-based guy. Like, like, of course I'm going to be upset and frustrated if, if things don't go the way they, that I anticipate or hope that they would. But if I make those kind of statements, it's not in an effort to, you know, be blatantly negative or, you know, like I said, you know, fish for fish for sympathy or anything like that. No, it's, just, it, 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 it's, it's, be, it's just being as legitimately sincere as I can. And let's face it with, without the struggles that, you know, hunting would become boring. Kind of like I talked about, you know, using the shotgun, it got to be boring for me. And it really is the struggles that makes the successes so great. And by the way, I'm right with you with trying to tie a bow and talk about, well, at least I guess I was outside or, you know, my stress reliever, one with nature and all that, man. People that listen to this podcast know what I think about that. And my, my thought is if I just wanted to be out in nature, I wouldn't spend all the money on gas and tags. I'd just go behind my house and the five acres I have and be in nature. And, um, and I, and I wouldn't get up at the ass crack of dawn when it's 15 degrees outside or whatever. You know, uh, I, I go hunting. If I have a tag in my pocket, I'm going hunting because I want to kill something. And that, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't have one without the other They're You know, they, they coexist, but just because, just because I don't notch a tag doesn't mean that I'm going to be super pumped about it. And, no, that's a good thing about turkey hunting is uh, there's a lot of hunts that were that are pretty fun and exciting that actually don't end up with filling your tag. You know, you get a turkey goblin and um, like that, like that. Yes, then and you get one answer, and sometimes it just doesn't all come together. But that you still had fun and it was exciting and. I don't discount that at all, but you spend a bunch of days in a row without any action. It, it is, frankly, it is. It's not very fun. It can be become work and draining and taxing mentally and physically. And um, I mean, I, I like being outside. I'd rather be outside than inside. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, um, I go hunting to kill something, and I and I don't hide that fact at all. And and I'm glad that you mentioned that. It's a great point. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 to a point now where, you know, words are being misinterpreted very, very easily with what we say online, and 
you know, if you if you hint in that direction that, yeah, I I have a tag in my pocket for a reason. I'm not I'm not going out just to go out. You know, when so when when you kind of make that insinuation that you know you have a goal in mind to to notch a tag, it I'm I'm getting worried that we're we're reaching that point culturally now where that could potentially be frowned upon and you know the only reason you should be out there is you know to enjoy nature and, and do all the other things but like i said there you can't have one without the other so yeah you, you are correct and uh i suppose that will be one reason why my uh social media following will never be huge and um you know i, I just can't can't pretend to be something i'm not yeah sorry i mean i don't i don't mean to go down that road no it's it's a great topic and and frankly probably should be you know we should get together and do another one sometime soon and and we could we could talk just about that and you're not the first person to kind of bring up bring that up on a podcast with me and uh we should just make a point right now to have that as an as a subject and have you on again because it it's uh maybe not that entertaining of a road to go down but it is a worthwhile subject but we're up to believe it or not an hour and 24 minutes already this has been long but flew by and i'm glad that we took the time to talk about everything we've talked about this is going to be uh, one of those episodes that I think people are going to listen from beginning to end and be drawn into. And I, and I really appreciate you calling and, and making time to, to give me a call and talk about it. Yeah, no, I apologize that we weren't able to make it sooner. Um, like I said, Logan reached out to me after um, I harvested this turkey 11 months ago. And at that time, um, I was also in the middle of a, of a bear hunt, which I was, you know, unsuccessful on. And then I had a lot of other problems come up where just life in general, where I, I hit three deer with my driving to and from work. I hit three deer over the course of just a couple of weeks and ended up totaling out two cars and um, in the process of hitting these deer at 70 miles an hour. And <laughs> then uh, we had a, we had a water leak in our house and the entire ceiling in my son's room collapsed and just 2020 just delivered one punch after another. and wasn't able to you know make this conversation happen no it's great timing now though i mean with turkey season right around the corner i mean it really worked out for the best i people are itching to be for seasons to get going and uh i know everyone listening is like this is feeling that itch so it all worked out for the best so um everybody out there don't forget you can uh, follow hot shot archery on Facebook and Instagram to search Hot Side Archery. Um, send your questions, comments, tell us how good we are, how bad we suck, whichever it might be, to podcast at hotshotmanufacturing.com. Brad, thanks again. And everybody that was listening, thanks for listening. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Right on, buddy.